Would you, uh, would you turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42? This morning, we're going to be looking at, um, not this text in particular, this text is a little bit of a holding, like a, a placeholder for us as we, as we consider, um, consider a topic that I feel compelled to preach on this morning because of the baptism. And everything that these young men, young women said um, from this microphone is a gospel presentation, you know, is a, is a sense of this is why, this is why we exist, you know, not, not just simply to baptize people, but, but it's, it's that we live, we live in this beautiful reality of having been born again to a living hope in Christ. Brought from our sin and into a relationship with the one for whom we've been made. To enjoy and to glorify. So even though that's been uh, plenty to consider this morning, I want us to focus in on a couple, couple of other things this morning through this. So Acts 2.41 through 42. So... Luke is writing here. He says, So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. You know, we live in a day where it's just like the reality is that there's just a number of people who don't see the value of the local church. Um, they might say, being in nature is my church, or I can worship God at home as well as I can in church, or, or even better uh, than in the church. Some, some have concluded that there's the unfortunate reality that the church is an unfortunate institution that exists to control people in some way, and as such is not worth stepping into at all. That's, that's a number of people's opinion and their, their thought. Whatever is said, there is a there's a sense that the gathered church, like what we're doing today, is unnecessary. It's, um, it's negotiable. Uh, perhaps even a good choice among a number of other choices. It's like a good choice, but there's many good choices. And this is just one of them. Uh, in many Christian hearts, the gathered church has come to play second fiddle to other events and gatherings and desires. And, and perhaps it's because there seems to be a sense that there is more blessing in a gathering of a group of friends at Starbucks or, or a group of friends at a park or walking in a metro park by yourself or whatever uh, sporting event there is. Um, the more blessing experience in a Bible study um, with friends during the week. Cer certainly there's blessing upon blessing in, in all of those things. And the Christians know that, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Every, everything is a, is a joyful experience is a, or, a, or something to be enjoyed um, like those things. But for many, church is just something like attending what we're doing this morning. Um, it's something you either do as an individual or a family or you don't. Um, church-going family or not a church-going family. Either way, there's a sense of a lack of expectancy that anything much really is going to happen from going to church. Um, and perhaps, again, we come out of a sense of obligation. Perhaps we come to serve others. Perhaps we come for relationships, reasons 
for coming to church or being uh, an attender at a church or even a member of a church can be many. And if we're being honest with ourselves, the reasons that we have for coming to church that sometimes just don't feel overly compelling. Some Sundays are great, other Sundays not so much. So, so that provokes a very foundational question. What is it that we're doing when we gather on Sundays? Why, why do this? Why, why come to Sunday morning gathering of Sovereign Grace Church Dayton? There's no air conditioning. There's no, um, uh, there's no real great protection from uh, heavy rain. Thankfully, we haven't had very many rains during Sundays. Uh, the distractions are plentiful. The technology isn't always working well. The pastor can be long-winded, and, and I'll try to keep it tight today, but we'll see. And, and so it all just seems just too long. And all in all, just, just a bit too unenjoyable comparatively. The songs might be really good on one Sunday, and then the next Sunday, you know, just not, not so much. Um, having your children with you in the service can be taxing. And you just really kind of wonder, like, is this even, is this worth it? I'm getting nothing out of this. Is what we do so worth just centering your entire week around it? Certainly when a believer is in a time of renewal and revival, then you know the answer to that is absolutely. You're on fire. You're just like, you're in revival mode. You're in renewal mode. And you've got to get to church. Because that's where you're going to hear God's word. That's where you're going to pray with other saints. That's where you're going you're to get fed and where you're going to be able to spend time with people who are, who are of like mind. And so, so you're, you're there. You make everything move around so that you can be there. But for the average Sunday, or below average Sunday, is attending the Sunday gathering worth it? Or would it have just been better to have just stayed home gone out into nature, met with other family members, or enjoyed a nice Sunday brunch somewhere. Here's a question that I think we need to consider. Might we be shortchanging what abundant blessing God intends for us in our consistent involvement in the weekly gathering of a local church when we choose to prioritize something else? Might we be shortchanging that which God intends for us by way of blessing by choosing something else? Well, who's to know? Well, the early church knew. The early church seemed to know that God would utilize various ordinary activities within the life of the church to bring great blessing to us. And so, like our text says, they sat under the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. They they, they went to do certain things, to to gain blessing, to to gain more grace, to to, to gain more strength. They, they seem to get it uh, week in and week out throughout the year, throughout the decade, and throughout the decades, where, where we are together slowly changed in, in process over the weeks, over the months, over the years, over the decades, as we position ourselves under, under what the godly men and women of old have called the means of grace, no matter how seemingly common and ordinary they might be. What, what, if, what if while God intends for some days, what what if God intends for some days as we gather together that we enjoy the, the, the sun, S-U-N, the sun, the light of his love and the personal, powerful care and presence to shine brightly on us and to, 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 to strengthen our hearts, to, to 
you know, you just feel those moments. What, what if there's those moments that are just so joyful, if that's what he intends? We love this. We're just the reality of revival joy, of, of extraordinary joy that we experience when we, when we hear a testimony and we're just like saying, this is so real. This, is, this life has been changed by the power of the gospel and it's so exciting. But then many other days, the, the experience is that the son of his love as personal and powerful as his presence may be, is actually more just like slowly warming us. Like by, kind of by sitting by a, a fire on a very cold day. It changes us through the ordinary means of grace that the Lord provides the church. There is blessing in both. Blessing in the high moments, blessing in the ordinary moments. In the former, it's easily seen and felt. In the latter, ordinariness of life in the church, it's easy to grow discontent. As we're always looking for something more seemingly radical and experiential, we're, we're hungry for that high experience. One scholar states, ordinary does not mean mediocre. Athletes and architects, humanitarians and artists can vouch for the importance of everyday faithfulness to mundane tasks that lead to excellence. And this is true in our lives. We know that the, the steady influence of something, as mundane as it is, um, will cause growth in our lives as we yield to it. Most of our lives are lived in mundane moments where God is working in us. He's moving us. He's working to bring blessing into our lives slowly and surely. He is completing the work that he began, but he does so slowly over a period of years and not just simply moments, although moments would be true as well. One systematic theologian calls the means of grace um, any activities within the fellowship of the church that God uses to give more grace to Christians, and I think that that's generally right. God utilizes the ordinary means of grace, like the teaching of the word, like baptism, like the Lord's Supper, like prayer for one another, like worship and song, like church discipline or giving or spiritual gifts or fellowship or evangelism or personal ministry to one another to strengthen those in the church as they sit under the means of grace. We don't believe those means of grace are means of being saved. We do believe that they are meant to grow us, to to strengthen us, to, to empower us for this life together by the Spirit. And to be clear, what this grace is that we'll be speaking of is not a what, it's a who. Uh, it's, it's specifically in each of the means of grace that we come in contact with the very person of Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord and our Savior, our, our King and our brother and our friend. Tony Ranke in his book on John Newton wrote this, he says, all the grace we have and can ever hope to have, all the sovereign grace, all the all-sufficient grace is bound up in the favor of the Father and in union with the Son, S-O-N. If, if you have Christ, you have all of Christ, and to have all of Christ is to have free access to Christ's all-sufficient grace. Grace is not a gate to fence us back from Christ. Grace is not a substitute for Christ. Grace does not stand between me and Christ. Rather, says Calvin, all graces are bestowed on us through Christ. Grace is shorthand for the full and free access we have to all the merits and power and promises to be found, not in a thing, not in a philosophy, but in the person of our Savior. 
And so for this morning, we're going to look at four primary means of grace that exist in the church that serve to kindle us, uh, to kindle in us the hope and joy of resting in the power and promises that are to be found in Jesus and him crucified, him rose again, him ascended to the throne. And we're going to focus on, uh, we're going to speak about four, but we're going to focus on two. So the first two will be pretty quick. The latter two will be a little bit longer. The first means of grace that I wanted to mention is this, the means of grace through the very presence and power of Jesus Christ in the teaching of the word, teaching of this book, not, not any book, not any other book, but, but this book that, that teaches us about Christ, about God revealing himself to us. The word of God is a, a, is a means of grace to the church. We've spoken of this so much over the years. It's not, it's not that we think we're the best preachers on the planet, surely. It's not, not even we're the best preachers in your lives. But we desire to preach from this word of God, knowing that it's the word of God proclaimed by the spirit of God and heard and responded and, and applied by the spirit of God in faithful obedience, where we will experience real renewal, real revival, real joy, real, well, the way David says it in Psalm 19 is that the word of God will restore our souls. The word of God will refresh us. The word of God will make wise the simple. The word of God will do all of these things. And the word, the word was made flesh and he dwelt among us. It is Jesus in the word, in the power of the word, the authoritative word of God that will strengthen and renew and revive us. God's word is instructive to us. God's word is powerful. God's word can save people. It will go out and it will not return empty. It will accomplish precisely what it is meant to accomplish. It will train us in righteousness. It'll grow us in faith and life as we sit under it, preached week after week. Some weeks, yeah, some weeks, bust, right? Some weeks, some weeks, man, the pastor gets up here I mean, I like to think this might happen anyway, is that like, wow, that, that, that sermon was a home run. And then other sermons are like, dink, little bunt, and the bunt goes foul. And it's like, nah, I'm really sorry about that. Or it's a swing and miss. But it's the consistent, sitting under the consistent, faithful preaching of the word of God that is going to work to change us. To cause us by the Spirit, to have our eyes open to see the glories of the Savior. And so when we gather, we expect that as the Bible is read, the Bible is faithfully preached and received with faith-filled obedience, we expect that the people of God are going to grow incrementally for the glory of God and for our joy as people. It is, it is, a, it is a sweet thing to get into God's Word together and something uniquely specific about the joy of the Sunday gathering when we get to all grow together, see Christ together, the means of grace through the teaching of the word, the means of grace also through prayer. God's given prayer as a means of grace to the church. Prayer, prayer is a direct communication with God. The author of Hebrews instructs believers, he says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, you, you might not raise your hand, but in your heart, would you raise your hand if you feel like you need more strength, if you feel like you need mercy, if you feel like you need more grace, more power for the Christian life? Yeah, I mean, how many of us, right? Two hands, all limbs, whatever, whatever it is. We, inside, we're saying, yes, this is true. 
Well, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Prayer is one of the ways God invites his people to trust him, to ask for his action on the earth in a way that he blesses and strengthens, answers our prayer, but even when he is silent, he blesses us with a sense of having been heard, having been listened to, received. We come to the throne by the blood of Jesus. We, We come assured, we come certain, we come confident. And so we pray. And sometimes we pray on Sunday mornings uh, very long and unapologetically so. And sometimes that's us praying from the platform and you agreeing with us in, in prayer by way of being an active participant in that prayer and not just a, a, a subtle observer. Sometimes that's us breaking down into groups, small groups like we've done numerous times and praying for something particular. And we pray with confidence knowing, again, that we are approaching the throne. We're not just simply praying and throwing our words to the wind. We are going straight to the throne and and asking the Lord Jesus for more of himself. There are other means of grace, of course, that are active in the gathered church as well um, that we could speak of this morning. I, I've spoken of a little bit about this, but just, uh, just mentioning it in a sentence, that the, uh, the grace of worship and song and, and singing, there is something to be, uh, something in that that strengthens us as we sing together. Uh, through various aspects of church discipline that's done appropriately, that has its goal as reconciliation with the Lord, through the generosity of worship and giving, or through the plethora of spiritual gifts that are for the common good of the church, through fellowship with one another, through the ministry of evangelism, through the ministry of personal, uh, or through, through uh, personal ministry with one another. All these things are, are works of God's grace in us and through us. And we, we've tried to preach on each of these things through the years. And so if there's any specific means of grace like that I just mentioned that you'd like to dive into a little bit more, you can just go to our website under sermons and type in a, um, a subject um, and uh, you'll, you'll be able to find something that we've preached on in that area. And as I was considering those specific means of grace and considering this church family, I was, I was really aware, it was Thursday afternoon, really aware of God's grace in you. It's active in this place. This is not glory, glory to us, this is glory to God. These are means of God's grace, God's activity in us. Um, it's not that we're hitting on all cylinders equally as a church, it's that God is working in all the cylinders, um, growing us, uh, moving us, strengthening us. Well, for the rest of our time together, I, I want to spend more specific time on two primary means of grace that we call ordinances of the church or sacraments of the church, specifically baptism and the Lord's Supper. I've spoken about each of these from time to time through the years. Last year was the most recent, I think, when Pastor Cale preached on, on both things as well. But we felt like uh, we wanted to share about them again this morning and kind of rather than ex- explaining everything about them, kind of focused in on, on some more some summary statements and, and directing towards some specificity on some certain areas. So the means of grace through baptism. Uh, we literally just enjoyed it, you know, means of grace. It's a, it's a gift that the Lord has given us for our strengthening and for our joy. And wh- why do we do this? Pastor Kale mentioned some of it. Let me, let me reemphasize. We believe that we should baptize because Jesus commands that all his disciples be baptized. 
Uh, simply put, the Great Commission speaks this way. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We believe that according to the very words of our Lord and Savior, we're to go and make disciples. And, and how do we do that? Well, we do that by professing our faith, by, by proclaiming Christ, and by then upon their reception of that and, and, and being born again by baptizing them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey all that, they've, all that Jesus has commanded. And we believe that that order is important. We believe that the order of making disciples and baptizing and teaching is, a, is a, a, a literal thing. So if one is a disciple of Jesus, having trusted in him for forgiveness of sins, having a right standing with God, and the, the intent to surrender entirely to him is there, Jesus says to declare it by baptism. This is the beauty of what we just saw. Four students, four young people who have been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, by the grace of God. And so it's a time to rejoice. It's a beautiful reality. Something, it's a, it's a symbol of that which has happened inside. Something that they've done now, professing it, has been, has been declared um, publicly. Something that has happened in their hearts, in their life. They have been born again. And so we've witnessed this morning that very thing, being... Um, identified as a disciple of Jesus. By getting baptized, we're, we're saying really from the get-go, each one of these four and each one that's been baptized, we've, we've from the get-go publicly identified with Christ. We, we are saying publicly we want to follow Jesus. We want to do all that he's commanded. We want to surrender our life to him. All of our hope is in him. And the first thing he says to do, get baptized. And so we baptize. Here's what our statement of faith says about baptism. Baptism is an initiatory, unrepeated sacrament for those who come to faith in Christ that pictures their remission of sins and union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Through immersion in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the believer publicly proclaims his faith in Christ and signifies his entrance into the body of Christ. We, we believe that, that baptism is something that's done by the church in fellowship with one another. So we affirm and portray the union of a believer with Christ by immersing him or her into water. It's what we, one of the things we do here as a church. And the reason we immerse is 100% because of what we see in the Bible. Uh, the, the, it's, it's 100% because it reflects the clear imagery of our union with Jesus in his burial and in his resurrection. Straight out of Romans chapter 6. That's why we believe that. That's why we immerse in particular. And we believe, of course, that baptism serves as a believer's act of publicly committing themselves to Christ and his people. And in so doing, signifying their entrance into the body of Christ. And though they're living in this world, they're saying, I'm no longer part of this world. I'm now in the kingdom of God by grace alone. We believe that scripture is clear that to be united in Christ's death means that we have been freed from sin's dominion. And we get that from Romans 6.6. 6. He says, we know, this is Paul, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you heard some, some uh, you know, confession of, 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 of past sins. Um, there is a sense that they no longer 
need to be enslaved to sin. They, they, as a matter of fact, go, go, Paul says in Galatians, uh, don't, don't walk back into slavery and to sin. You've been freed from it. We believe that Scripture is clear that to be united in Christ's death means we're freed from sin's ultimate penalty. Romans 6, 7, and 8 says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Or, or the famous verse, Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We, we believe that, that Scripture is clear that to be united in Christ's resurrection means we really truly have new life in Christ. What, what this means very practically is that we've been given eternal, immortal life. So Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he's, he's raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace towards us, grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So a grace of eternal, immortal life, eternal life. And not only eternal life, but we've been given an empowered mortal life. So this life now, it says in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to what? To your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you this is why we rejoice so much on baptism sundays we this is why we tend to be so strengthened and encouraged in our own faith as we sing and listen and depart out of this building today we're strengthened because we have seen the clear activity of god in a person's life and for people's life in particular we see this so it's true also as we look at one another who have been born again we see god's activity we see the saving work of the eternal God at work in his people, and specifically in baptism we see it clearly. There's a happy heart that's walking in obedience to the command of the risen and reigning Savior and King. These four were baptized, not simply just because, well, it's the next thing to do. It's because they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They've submitted to him. They want to follow him. They believe he is Lord. They believe he is the King that's coming back. And they want to follow him with all their heart, and it starts with baptism. For the glory of God. And it believes by repenting and believing the gospel, and is evidenced in baptism. And it's just awesome. And so tears are appropriate. Now let me just address a couple of connected other things for a moment. The fact that we believe that baptism is only intended for the individual who has genuinely repented of his sins and put saving faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior puts us at odds in some ways with those who believe in the practice of baptizing infants. And of those who baptize infants, let me just briefly state that, that we believe that there are two camps here. One camp is those who believe that infants must be baptized to be saved. So it is, a, it is a, um, a necessary component of their salvation. We would disagree entirely with that and believe that that is anti-gospel and Paul would say that it is no good news at all whatsoever. But there's another camp that's out there. The other camp is those who believe that infant baptism does not state that a child has performed anything that contributes to their salvation. They believe, this is very simplified, okay, they believe that infant baptism has 
more to do with the continuity that is between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There's a lot to that, um, specifically for a child who is growing up in a Christian home, like, like we've seen evidence today in some ways as well. Now, while there are many in this camp whom we love and respect very much and believe that their argumentation strives to be founded uh, biblically and get at something specifically wonderful about growing up in a Christian home, we believe that there is nevertheless error in their understanding. That's where we stand. With, with, that, with that said, we also recognize that these brothers and sisters you know, who embrace infant baptism in this manner actually agree with everything that we did this day. They, they agree entirely with, with what we're... When they baptize somebody that's not an infant, uh, this is, this is the, the joy of the, of the event. This is what's going on, is this new life, a, a believer getting baptized. Um, we just disagree with the action of baptizing infants. And the argument for continuity between the covenants just isn't persuasive to us. But for what it's worth, I do also want to say that we love the impulse of our Presbyterian and Reformed brothers and sisters in identifying the gift and blessing it is to be brought up in a Christian home um, that has parents who are following Christ. We, we've chosen specifically to celebrate and prioritize this through our child dedication services, but, but we leave the action of baptism for those who have a credible profession of faith. So that brings up one other thought that comes to mind immediately before I move on to final thoughts this morning. We believe that baptism is to be administered to all those whom God calls to himself as disciples, even if those disciples are children. And so we are happy to baptize children here. And since the scripture gives no minimum age, um, neither will we give a minimum age. Here's what we do say, though. The, the challenge in baptizing children is the difficulty in discerning whether a child is truly a disciple of Jesus, one who has a saving faith. And when we send out our weekly update this week uh, through email, please, please look for a link, or through Church Center, sorry, um, please look for a link to some guidelines and recommendations that we have as far as encouraging you as parents to follow certain, certain things, to ask certain questions to determine if your child should be baptized. Ultimately, we desire parents to make the decision on whether to baptize their children and discuss it with pastors and seek others opinions, observations, who, who, uh, who know your child will make those ob observations in an objective manner. There's a bit of a balance that we want to strike here. You know, the child doesn't have to be more of a Christian than you are. I'll just give just a quick example of my son. Um, my son professed faith when he was real young. And I kept saying, he needs to show me, he needs to show me, he needs to show me, he needs to show me. Finally, when he was 15, he said, uh, he said, what else do I need to do to be saved? And I realized that, that I was wanting him to be more of a Christian than I was at 40 than, than I was when I was 12 or 13 or 14 or 15. He had a simple profession of faith, wanted to follow Christ in obedience, and I held him back from that because he didn't meet up to my standards. Do you see the error in that? I hope, hope, hope you do. There's wisdom that's wrapped up in some of that, but we want to make sure that we're not, we're not creating a, an entirely different gospel. Credibility is seen not in simply 
a child being able to parrot something back to you in, in, in some sort of way, but a reality that their faith in Christ is having a noticeable effect on their lives. And that takes time, that takes conversation, that takes relationship. Last point, the means of grace through the Lord's Supper. This will be a little bit briefer, I think. The, the, this, this holy gift, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or, or communion really necessitates more time. But for today, let me just try to briefly explain what it is we believe about the Lord's Supper. Our statement of faith says this. In the Lord's Supper, the gathered church eats bread, signifying Christ's body given for his people, drinks the cup of the Lord, signifying his blood shed for our sins. And as we observe this sacrament with faith and sober self-examination, we remember and proclaim the death of Christ, commune with him, and receive spiritual nourishment for our souls, signify our unity with other members of Christ's body, and look forward to the Lord's triumphant return. Now again, Pastor Cale just preached on this last year, and I'd encourage you to go and listen to that sermon for greater detail. But let me just home in on a few specific points to speak to the reason that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace and a means of blessing to us. We, we, we enjoy it each and every Sunday for a reason. We believe that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, and so it's specifically that because there's a unique way that we experience the very real presence of Jesus through our participation in eating of the bread and drinking of the cup. And because of this, we believe that the Lord's Supper is, in fact, more important for our spiritual growth than many of us have grown up believing or come to the table each week expecting. If you grew up in a church like mine, we, we would have the Lord's Supper, take the Lord's Supper every month, just in the first Sunday of each month. And, and, um, and it was... To me, growing up, a, uh, just like a thing that we did and, and uh, uh, understood certain elements of it, but, but certainly not the weight and the glory of it. Certainly nothing about the presence of Jesus. Certainly nothing about the quote, unquote, eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood and being strengthened by him. For many, the Lord's Supper is only a memorial meal. That's how I grew up. It was just something we remembered. Something, of course, Jesus says, you know, do this in remembrance of me, so it's certainly a memorial meal. Um, but we believe it's much more than just remembering what Christ has done. We believe that the table we come to each week is a table that the Lord Jesus himself has set apart. It's made holy. It is holy communion for us to be blessed and strengthened and nourished through the blood, the blood and the body of Christ with Jesus and one another. We, we'd want you to know that we do believe that Christ is present through the supper. To be sure, and please hear me, we do not believe in the ancient anti-gospel teaching that states that the juice and the crackers actually change into the very blood and body of Christ in, in a way that though he like, needs to be re-sacrificed for our sins. And so we come each Sunday for him to be re-sacrificed for us in some way. We do not believe that whatsoever, but we do believe in, and we're in process in this, trying, trying to figure this out. When we, read, when we read about the reformers, when we read about people in history working through this, I mean, there are volumes written of just trying to grap grapple with the understanding of what is going on here when we take the Lord's Supper, and it certainly does more than we're eating a cracker and drinking some juice. 
And so the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we love mostly, says, uh, We do then also, inwardly by faith, really, and indeed yet not carnally, body and corporally, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified, the body and blood of Christ being then really, but spiritually, present to the faith of believers in that ordinance. So as we come to the table um, and spiritually receive the feed and feed upon Christ crucified, we realize that approaching the table is a serious thing. Approaching the table is, is just much more than what we ever could imagine. We, we, we kind of uh, skip around in 1 Corinthians 11 and, and we like certain passages and we're like, well, I don't want to really think about these other passages that it speaks of. It's a serious matter. We, we need to come to this table each week with a joy-filled sobriety. A joy-filled sobriety. God's Word tells us that as we come to this table and spiritually receive and feed upon Him, we are blessed with assurance. We're blessed with peace. We're blessed with joy. We're blessed with renewed strength. We're, we're blessed with reminder that all of our sins have been paid for in Christ. We're, we're blessed with this freeing truth of the gospel. And we come repentant. We come thankful. We come yearning. We come desiring. And we eat and drink together of the body and blood of the Lord as those who have professed faith those who trust Christ truly, and we're walking in obedience to him and in unity with him. We're not walking in obedience to him perfectly, right? I mean, there are things that we're sometimes doing and things that we're all, there's always things we're not doing that we should be doing. We come to the table having the full righteousness of Christ. We come to the table uh, repentant and yearning and leaning, leaning into Christ and saying, thank you for your sacrifice. We always come to the table hungry to eat of Christ's drink of the blood of, that, that, that was spilled for our salvation. So as we walk in obedience to him and in unity with him and in unity with one another, we're nourished and unified in our hearts and minds. And part of the reason that we believe participation in this meal is a serious matter isn't only account, on account of the many blessings that are there, but the warnings that are given for not coming to the table in a worthy manner. Namely, not discerning the body. Tim Shorey, in his book, The Communion Truce, states this. He says, we need to recognize that careless and unworthy participation in the communion meal is no trifling offense. If I understand 1 Corinthians 10 through 11 correctly, we need a good sobriety check. For according to the sacred scripture, it is sacrilegious and dangerous to partake of the communion meal unworthily. That is, without prior meaningful effort to make peace with others. Sacrilegious, flippant, and careless disrespect for something that is sacred. And when Paul rebukes people for despising the church of God, his words are meant to shock. He is scolding the way they are trivializing and thinking little or nothing of those who belong to God, those whom God has set apart for himself and purchased with his own blood. Communion with the church is sacred because the church is sacred. And if we despise the sacred by treating other believers irreverently or disdainfully, we are sacrilegious. And such sacrilege is dangerous, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 through 30, where Paul states this. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 
Now, it's worth far more consideration. Um, that sounds pretty serious. Not discerning the body when we come together to eat this meal together sounds pretty serious and sobering. To eat and drink of this meal when you are walking in unrepentant unforgiveness or some other manner of ongoing unrepentance, this meal can serve in some manner as the very opposite of blessing. For the unrepentant sinner, the, present, the, the key is unrepentant, okay? We are repentant, by God's grace, we are those, we want to be those Christians. That's, we're, we're kind of marked as those who are walking in repentance and faith always. But when we are walking in unrepentance, unrepentant forgiveness or other manners of unrepentance, this meal, again, can serve in some way to, to bring the opposite of God's blessing. Even, even in the New Testament church like Corinth, it brought an element of God's curse, the opposite of blessing. So coming to this table is far from anything. It's just a piece of the church pie that we eat each week. It's serious business, and it's why Paul writes the way he did in 1 Corinthians 11. It's why he says to come to the table, this, this holy table, having examined yourself, specifically to see if there be, in, be any unrepentant way in you. We come to the table with sober joy, joy in the blessing of all that is ours in Christ Jesus and sobriety because if we come with casual flippancy and allow our unrepentant hearts to fester, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves as Paul speaks of. So, so if there's an unrepentant heart in us, what do we do? Well, as Christians, we confess and repent and believe the gospel and we go to the table and we come to the table and partake of the meal. If the unrepentance has to do with a broken relationship in the church, in any sort of way, in a marriage relationship, in a, in a, in a family relationship, in, in, in a relationship between one another as members or regular attenders, man, this calls us to stop each week, to, to, to not let it go by and just, well, it's not a big deal. It is a huge deal. Disunity in the church, enormous deal. Fighting between a husband and wife, enormous deal. Disagreements in families where there's unforgiveness and bitterness growing. Huge deal. For the sake of the glory of God, it's a huge deal, but also just for the sake of your own safety <laughs> as we come to the table that we don't eat and drink judgment on ourselves as we just are content with the animosity that takes place between us. I'm not saying there is any specific animosity here. I, I don't know. You, you check your own heart. Among many questions that you might ask yourself stands, stands this one. Can I sincerely embrace with love all who will join me in communion today? You know, so much more could be said, but I have two more quick things about that and then I'll conclude. We come to the Lord's Supper with a heart of repentance and faith and expectation of receiving blessing from Jesus. We don't come to receive repentance. We don't come to receive forgiveness. Uh, we come repentant. We come professing our trust in Christ's sufficient sacrifice and we come expectant to receive the food that God 
says will strengthen us, namely himself. In in the supper, we, we not only remember the saving grace of God in Christ, but receive the strengthening grace of God in Christ. The grace that there is in the Lord's Supper is for those who have repented, those who have believed the gospel and are living in the joy of the gifts of repentance and faith in Christ. This is who the Lord's Supper is for, and it's for that reason that we also believe that only those who have a credible profession of faith and then have had that confirmed by the church body through the waters of baptism should participate in this meal. The natural order in the life of the people of the church is repent, believe the gospel, and walk in obedience. So so whether young or old, we believe that the first step of obedience for the one who is trusted in Christ is baptism, not communion. And then with that display of repentance and belief in Christ, we come to the table together to enjoy his blessings of, as the redeemed, as the purchased, as the, as the born-again ones of God. If you, if you believe your child has been born again but hasn't yet been baptized, man, please let us know. Please let Dan, Kale, or I know. We'd love to talk with you and move forward with joy in that. And if you think your child should take communion, I, I trust you see the seriousness of what we're talking about this morning. If you, if you believe they should, then, then that means you believe that they have a credible profession of faith. It means that they're able to examine themselves. It means that they're able to discern the body as I spoke of. And if that's the case, then we are all in. And we will get them baptized and we'll move forward with joy. Well, that's a lot of information and, and really it needed to be more. So... Go to, we'll, we'll send out links this week, but let me conclude with this simple and glorious truth and application. May we remember that when Jesus ascended to the Father, he did not leave us as orphans. Uh, we're his children. He did not leave us as orphans alone to fend for ourselves in some way. Rather, he gave us the Holy Spirit to lead us, and he gave us several means of grace by which he blesses his people. He gave us one another as well. This is one of the, these are all these things that we do together. God loves his people. He daily cares for us with many types of of grace and blesses us with the strengthening, enabling power of grace that is found, every single one of them, in his presence with us. As we gather together, we draw near to him, uh, not just to to a place. We gather near to a person, to him, to draw near to him together. And what the promise is, is when we draw to him, he draws near to us. There's nothing ordinary or rote or boring or replaceable in that. Once we're given eyes to see the gathering of the healthy local church is far greater than any friend group, any, any organization or event that's available to choose from. May, may we come to Sundays expectant to receive grace, to receive Christ more clearly, more intimately, expectant not only for a good experience, but expectant to receive grace through the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary, those utterly supernatural means of grace that take place as we gather each Sunday. This is the core of what we believe about our Sunday gathering, why we prefer to have children with us in this gathering, and what informs our prayers as we gather. So may the Lord strengthen each of us in the power of his presence, all the more as we gather for the glory of God and truly for our joy together. This is, this is the plan and pathway of God as we walk together in this church family. So with all that said, we get to enjoy the Lord's Supper together now. Now it's not every Sunday, right, where we get to have baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those two things together are beautiful. But there's means of grace happening all the time as we gather. These two um, 
Or this, this one, the Lord's Supper, is one that we come to each and every week. And so just as I've spoken this morning, just keep track of those things. Come to the table with Christian, listen to me, come to the table with joy. Come to the table knowing that you've been freed from your sin. Come to the table knowing that you're not coming to the table to get right with God, but you're coming to the table because you are right with God because of Christ's righteousness. And if there is any wicked way in you, confess it. Repent. If you have a broken relationship, go and deal with it right now. I mean, take it outside, but, but, but do it now. Don't say I'll do it later. This is one of the reasons why we want to do this each week, because it keeps us, keeps us in line. And so, so please consider this seriously. And as we're processing through this with some of you concerning your children, would you, would you listen to what was said and consider what was said this morning? And where there's questions, please feel free to ask. Um, if you are a follower of Jesus, we say this each week, if you are a follower of Jesus, um, you trust in him. And, and, and as, you, as you come, you're like, Tarzan, no, there's like no unrepentant sin, and I'm coming as a sinner who has been forgiven. Um, whether you're a member of this church or not, you are welcome to this meal. There'll be people up here and people over here. Um, Handing, handing out the elements, and you can take them back to your seats, and, and, uh, and we'll all eat together because we are communing with the Lord together. If you are in unrepentance, if you, if you have not trusted in Jesus, if you're not sure, like if you're not, you've got this like relational, not just tension, but it's like you're holding bitterness in your heart towards somebody, and Please take the opportunity to deal with it again. Let this time pass by, but, but go do something about it. Make it right. Um, but if you're not a follower of Christ, just let this, let this time pass you by. If you're living in unrepentant sin, let this time pass you by. And please talk to us after the service. We'd love to talk with you. So, church, let's, let's come and eat.